Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by Dr. John Cunningham of Trinity College Dublin and the University of Freiburg. His paper was entitled Divided Conquerors, Martial Law and the Politics of Conquests in Ireland, 1649-53. In January 1649, the, the Irish rebels at last made their peace with Charles I, only for English revolutionaries to cut off his head a fortnight later. In constitutional terms, Ireland had long been a kingdom united and knit to the imperial crown of the realm of England. With the crown cast down, the imperial knit soon became a Cromwellian knot. Oliver Cromwell's expedition against the Catholics and Royalists in Ireland was essential to the survival of the infant Commonwealth. At the same time, the problems, the problems thrown up by conquest exercised a destabilising influence on proceedings at Westminster in the early 1650s. Unfortunately, the nature of the complex relationship that existed between Irish war and English politics in these years is but poorly understood. Due to time constraints, this paper will offer no more than an overview of one half of the first half of my wider efforts to examine that complex relationship. The wider argument which I'll only be touching on here is that the divisions which emerged within the English regime in Ireland from 1650 onwards had a greater impact on the well-known political conflict in England in 1652-53 than has been hitherto realised. I'll say a bit more about that at the end. The emergence of, of the divisions among the conquerors also represented an, an important preliminary to the power struggle that took place between Baptists, Independents and, and Old Protestants in the, in the later 1650s. Um, an episode which has been best detailed by Toby Bernard. What I will do in this paper is attempt to offer a new angle of approach to the Cromwellian conquest, one which allows us to see through the smoke of Drogheda and beyond the seemingly inexorable English advance to victory. I will focus on one of the several uh, disputes and disagreements which served to fracture the unity of the English wartime regime in Ireland, uh, an episode which can be labelled perhaps as the Axtell Incident. Um, The series of quarrels which I'm going to be uh, uh, skimming across were shaped mainly by three factors. First, the officers, officials and churchmen who embarked for Ireland carried over from the turmoil of Civil War England a range of competing political and religious views. The challenges of their new environment simply added fresh weight to this baggage. Uh, For the purposes of this paper, the the most important broad groupings are the the Independents uh, and the Baptists. I'm leaving out the old Protestants because it gets complicated there. Um, Secondly, the notable discrepancy between the military codes of conduct observed in England and in Ireland respectively was a further source of tension. While army officers invoked divine sanctions, superior orders and military necessity as justification for their excesses and atrocities, at least one legally minded civil official sought to impose some badly needed restraints. The key figure in this confrontation was John Weaver, one of the four commissioners appointed by the Rump Parliament in 1650 to oversee the rebuilding of the English state in Ireland. Um, Weaver's attempts to rein in the military would be shaped also by his republican views on the issue of civilian and parliamentary supremacy over the army, as well as by his concern about the increasing religious radicalism of the army officers. Uh, Weaver himself was one of the most prominent independents um, in Dublin, while the army officers with whom he increasingly came into conflict were for the most part uh, Baptists. Weaver's actions 
uh, in Ireland uh, were enabled and at, against the army were enabled and at the same time limited by a third key factor the failure of the rump parliament to establish clearly defined rules and parameters to govern the relationship between the civil and military powers in Ireland by the close of 1651 the ambiguities that surrounded the exercise of authority in Ireland had, had provoked a contest for command of the army. This, context, this contest rather, subsequently spilled over into Westminster politics, where the proper relationship between the civil and military powers was already something of a hot topic. In June 1649, the Rump Parliament entrusted the recovery of Ireland to its best soldier, resolving, quote, that the, military, that the civil and military power in Ireland shall be, for the present, conjoined in one person, unquote. A year later, Oliver Cromwell returned to London, having delegated responsibility for completing the conquest to his son-in-law, Henry Ireton. At Westminster, Cromwell advocated the appointment of commissioners to take on the responsibilities of civil government in Ireland. By October 1650, Parliament had finalised the appointment as commissioners of four MPs, Edmund Ludlow, John Jones, Miles Corbett and John Weaver. The responsibilities entrusted to these men, the managing and right ordering of the civil affairs, ranged from, the facilitating, ranged from facilitating the propagation of the gospel to the levying of taxation. On the one hand, with their agenda defined only in very broad terms, the commissioners enjoyed some freedom to formulate their own particular policies. On the other hand, some of the measures put in place by Parliament for the Government of Ireland served to create a considerable overlapping of civil and military authority and to blur the division between these two spheres. First, the commissioners were expected to act with the advice and approbation of Cromwell and Ireton. Secondly, Ludlow was to combine his office as a commissioner with the post of Lieutenant General of the Horse in Ireland. Thirdly, the commissioners were empowered to sit and vote at councils of war as often as they shall see fit. Uh, the challenges of conquest would serve to reveal the potential for conflict that existed within these novel power structures. The part played by the commissioners in governing Ireland up to 1654 has received much less attention from historians than the subsequent regimes, regimes of Charles Fleetwood and Henry Cromwell. Samuel Gardner's verdict that none of the four were men of first-rate or perhaps even second-rate ability was scarcely designed to encourage closer scrutiny of their work. Sarah Barber has more recently described them simply as Republican supporters of the Commonwealth regime. John Weaver, the only non-regicide among the commissioners, was elected MP for Stamford in 1645. Before then, he had served as Judge Advocate to the Earl of Manchester's Parliamentarian Army. His Irish appointment, uh, as with the other commissioners, has been attributed to his closeness to Cromwell. Uh, Toby Barnard has noted that Weaver became the foremost champion of civil government against the military in Ireland. In England, he would later find allies in men such as Henry Martin and Sir Arthur Hesselberg, men whom John Morrill has described as hypersensitive to military presumption in politics. Weaver was to become closely associated with these and other Commonwealth's men, opposing the establishment of the, protect of the Protectorate in 1653, and enjoying a brief return to power in 1659. Although Dublin was the main seat of the Commissioner's government, in the first half of 1651, so that's the period immediately after they arrived in Ireland, they spent several months in the south of the country, essentially on the front lines of the conquest. During that time, they worked closely with Ireton to develop a range of policies. They also came face to face with many army officers and gained some insight into how the war was being prosecuted. 
It would immediately have it would immediately have become apparent to the commissioners that warfare in Ireland was often rather more brutal and bloody than what they had been used to in England. The conduct of military conflict between the English the English state and its opponents in Ireland had been particularly vicious since at least the 16th century, a pattern shaped by divergences in religious confession and ethnic identity, amongst other things. The horrendous violence of the 1641 rebellion and uh, Protestant perceptions of it helped further to exacerbate the situation. Barbara Donegan has noted that Irish troops who fought in the English civil wars were allotted the role of others who had either removed themselves from or had never known the laws of God and nature. Parliament gave clear expression to this attitude in 1644 when it passed an ordinance forbidding the granting of quarter to Irish Catholics fighting on the Royalist side in England. During the conquest of Ireland, the ruthless treatment of Catholic enemies would be rendered altogether more problematic and controversial by the presence of a large civilian Catholic population. The civilians in question fell into two main categories, those who were willing to live under protection in conquered territory and to provide taxes and provisions for the support of the English army, and those who lived beyond the line and outside of protection in enemy territory. Under the Scorched Earth campaign initiated by Ireton in the autumn of 1650, all persons found in enemy territory were liable to be slaughtered out of hand. In protected territory, the military governors of the various precincts enforced a code of martial law based upon the laws and ordinances of war that had been published by the parliamentarian general, the Earl of Essex, in 1643. In England in the 1640s, Parliament had permitted proceedings against civilians under martial law only very reluctantly and in, in, and in limited circumstances. The conquest of Ireland witnessed a trend in the opposite direction. Faced with the intractable problem of countering civilian cooperation with Catholic forces, Ireton and other officers augmented Essex's code of martial law with supplementary measures. Some of these measures were aimed at enforcing collective Catholic responsibility at a local level for any deaths or destruction that resulted from Catholic guerrilla raids. For instance, under the terms of a proclamation issued by the Governor of Dublin in February 1650, the killing of an army officer was to be punished by the levying of a fine of £100 on the Catholics of the barony where the killing took place. The Catholics could avoid this fine by handing over the party responsible within 10 days. The introduction of such measures did little to stem the cycle of violence, and English officers grew ever more frustrated at the seeming obstinacy of the Catholic population. The commissioners were confronted with the consequences of this uh, messy situation shortly after their arrival in Ireland, when they exercised their right to sit on a council of war convened at Kilkenny. The council in question met to consider the charges that had, that had been brought against the Baptist governor of the town, Colonel Daniel Axtell. Axtell had, uh, had previously been a grocer's, a grocer's apprentice before taking up arms during the First Civil War. By January 1649, he was a lieutenant colonel with responsibility for commanding the soldiers in attendance at the trial of the king. Nine months later, at Drogheda, he allegedly granted quarter to a group of around 200 men who had retreated to a citadel. These men were, however, subsequently disarmed and executed in obedience to Cromwell's command to spare none of the garrison. After the taking of Kilkenny in March 1650, Axel was installed as governor and given his own regiment. The charges against Axel arose for the most part uh, from his efforts to enforce martial law and to pacify the restless territory around his stronghold at Kilkenny. Alongside allegations of corruption and misappropriation of public funds, Axel was accused of ordering the killing of Catholic civilians living under protection in Parliament quarters 
and of authorising the execution of enemy soldiers after the granting of quarter. Among his actions was the execution without trial of 16 civilians in retaliation for the killing of eight English soldiers by unidentified Irish forces. Axtell's notoriety was such that in 1662 his exploits featured prominently in a pro-Catholic pamphlet detailing the massacres allegedly carried out by Protestants during the war. At his trial for treason in 1660, uh, for his role in, in the regicide, he was forthright about his involvement in the conquest, claiming that God had used him as an instrument to suppress the Irish. Such an argument would certainly have carried some weight among the officers gathered at Kilkenny in 1651. At that point, Axtell claimed that his harsh actions were justified because he had recently issued dire warnings to the local population against the harbouring and assisting of rebels. As these warnings had done little to stem the violence, he felt justified in enforcing collective punishments. The 16 civilians were executed because they had failed to provide intelligence on the movement of enemy forces. Despite Axtell's plea of necessity, one of the commissioners proved entirely unwilling to accept his defence. John Weaver's previous employment as Judge Advocate to the Earl of Manchester's army meant that he was well informed concerning the workings of martial law and about the codes of conduct to which officers and soldiers in England had been expected to adhere to during the civil wars. Having heard the evidence against Axtell, he concluded that the colonel himself ought to be executed. Instead, after several days set apart to seek the Lord, the Council of War voted merely to to suspend Axtell from his post. Following his suspension, Axtell left for England, presumably in an attempt to clear his name. Weaver was, however, incensed at the leniency shown at Kilkenny, and he was determined to prevent such an outcome. He duly sent a letter to one of his fellow MPs in England, in which he strongly criticised Ireton and the officers for their leniency towards Axtell. The officers would later claim that Weaver's letter, quote, did scandalously represent our late general and the officers of this army, unquote. Because the, the document has not survived, uh, Weaver's letter um, hasn't survived, its precise content can only be guessed at. Weaver presumably lamented the apparent lack of legal and mor- moral restraints in Irish warfare, while it, it, is al- it is also possible that he lambasted the Baptist officers for their failure to condemn one of their own. Whether or not religion was a motivating factor in Weaver's attack on the army officers, he can hardly have foreseen what would happen next. While en route to London, both Colonel Axtell and Weaver's letter were captured at sea by forces oper- operating out of the royalist outpost on the Isles of Scilly. Scilly? Scilly? I don't know. Uh, the revelations contained in the letter led the Irish royalists stationed there to press for Axtell's execution. Instead, the timely arrival of a parliamentarian squadron ensured his safe release. Within six months, Axtell was back in command at Kilkenny, and this helped to ensure that Weaver's indiscreet letter would not be soon forgotten. So this um, Axtell incident really is one of uh, three um, sort of flashpoint episodes in, in 1651, 1652, which essentially pitted Weaver against uh, leading Baptist army officers. At the end of 1651, after Ireton's death, uh, Weaver attempted to engineer a civilian takeover of the army command, and he seems to have been behind uh, uh, false rumours of a Baptist plot to, to um, take over the army. So he was trying to exploit... Um, divisions amongst the officers to enhance uh, civilian control. Again, in April 1652, he was uh, he clashed with officers at Kilkenny. Again, he was on the losing side there, and he, he left the country at that point. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, once he got to uh, 
to London in about May 1652, uh, Weaver allied himself with Republican MPs, um, and one of his main objectives was to limit the army share of the imminent land settlement. Uh, and one of the ways he did that was by insisting that the officers and soldiers had enjoyed free quarter uh, on a widespread basis in Ireland and, and that they ought to have uh, their arrears discounted by a certain percentage. The, the eventual figure adopted in January 1653 was 50%, which would have meant that the army was only going to get half of the, the land uh, to which it thought it was entitled. The second issue he concerned himself with was the, the government of Ireland he was involved with um, the move to allow Cromwell's office of Lord Lieutenant to, to lapse in, in, in June 1652. This meant that uh, effectively that the Lord Lieutenancy uh, occupied by the main military officer in the three kingdoms uh, went out of existence. And again, Weaver had a view to increasing uh, civilian power there. Um, by 1653, really, the officers in Ireland had enough of Weaver and they sent a delegation to Westminster with a lengthy petition, which, which forms the basis of, of much of my uh, research uh, on, on this topic. And they, they eventually had, uh, forced him out of office and got a slightly better deal on the land settlement. Once Cromwell uh, expelled the Parliament in April 1653, the army got an even better deal on uh, the land settlement. So I've been trying to relate the tensions coming out of the war in Ireland to um, how, how that impacts on uh, politics in England. Um, so really what I mean by a sort of new angle on, on, the, on the Cromwellian uh, conquest is, is that we, I suppose the, the general way of looking at the conventional narrative is we need to know why the English won and why the Irish lost. And the emphasis tends to be on the strengths of, of the English side, Cromwell's treasury, Cromwell's artillery train, um, and then the weaknesses of the Irish side, so divisions among the clergy, um, various other problems, lack of, lack of weapons, lack of money. Uh, I think it's worthwhile to look behind that and, and to look at the parliamentarian side and to see that they're actually having um, they're actually having a, a lot of problems, even though those problems don't prevent um, ultimate victory. Um, it's only by examining those problems that we can link them into what's happening in England at the same time, and, and so bring bring together the historiographies of conquest with the sort of work that Blair Worden did on on the Rump Parliament uh, several decades ago. As Weaver has left us no detailed explanation of the motivations behind his anti-army stance, it is not possible to state precisely the, rel the relative importance of his concerns over issues of violence, law, religion and authority, respectively. Nonetheless, his efforts to place restraints on the conduct of the conquest are of particular interest because they reveal that the range of attitudes towards violence that existed within the English regime in Ireland was wider than previously understood. This range extended from Axtell at one end to Weaver at the other. Weaver was representative of the legalistic and moderate approach that helped to shape the culture of violence in the English civil wars, while Axtell pleaded necessity as the grounds for brutality against the perceived enemies of his country and his god. This latter attitude is one of the factors that helped to bring the levels of debt and destruction in Ireland closer to that scene in the Thirty Years' War on the continent. Although the programme of post-war punishments approved for Ireland in August 1652, the, uh, the famous Act for the Settling of Ireland, has received considerable attention from historians, Weaver's opposition to the heavy-handed use of martial law meant that it was in fact the ongoing harsh treatment of civilians during the conquest that generated greater controversy in the short term. Whether or not his fellow Republican MPs at Westminster evinced, evinced any great concern for the fate of Catholic civilians, they would certainly have been receptive to his arguments that the army in Ireland needed to be brought under tighter civilian control and its officers prevented from securing too large a share in both the government of Ireland and the land settlement.
for men well versed in classical history, the apparent dangers of this situation would have been readily apparent. Furthermore, they could not have viewed the growing dominance of the military in Ireland in isolation from the steady increase since the mid-1640s of army power in English politics. By 1652, the political repercussions of the Rump's decision to unleash a military force that it could not control into an Irish war that it could neither afford to lose nor to pay for were being felt at Westminster. Thank you.